Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. We often hear about Pennsylvania trailing other states or being one of the nation's leaders in one category or another. Usually, those reports will be in the context of a political argument. A new report from the Tax Foundation compares Pennsylvania's economy and taxes to other states. It's called Pennsylvania Illustrated, a visual guide to taxes and the economy. To discuss its findings are Nicole Kading, an economist with the Center for State Tax Policy at the Tax Foundation, and David Patty, president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Business Council, who partnered with the Tax Foundation on the report. Nicole Kading and David Patty, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thank you. How did this all come together? Uh, so this is a chart book in our series that at the Tax Foundation we've been putting together for a number of years. This is our uh, about I think our fifth or our sixth edition. And not everyone is a tax economist, ta- a tax economist like myself. And what we wanted to do is to uh, work with a great partner in the state like Pennsylvania Business Council Foundation and really try to. Uh, dissect the Pennsylvania tax code, its structure, its collections, and present it in a format that listeners uh, of this program and others in the state could could understand what is a very complex tax code. David Patty, why did you want to do this? Why did you want to partner with the Tax Foundation? Well, the Tax Foundation, of course, is, is the, the nation's premier group when it comes to analyzing and understanding American taxes and taxes at the state and local level, as well as the federal level. Uh, But our organization looks to make Pennsylvania more competitive, a place where people will start their next business or grow the businesses they have or at least be more profitable. So they want to keep those businesses here, keep those jobs here. A couple of years ago, we started something called the Scorecard Project. So PASCorecard.com is a website of 55 metrics that compare Pennsylvania to other states on those factors that businesses look at. But we knew we needed a deeper dive on taxes. So if someone goes to scorecard.com today and looks on the taxes page, they can also get this deeper dive provided to us by the Tax Foundation, this, this illustrated, vision, uh, illustrated vision of Pennsylvania's taxes to understand wh- where is our economy, where has it been, where is it going to, and how does tax policy uh, impact that? How should we think about tax policy going forward? This was to give us a level playing field for a conversation with policymakers about what do we do next. Yeah, there are no recommendations in this. This, right. you know, this is just uh, a book full of statistics, and it's not just. Even though it's the Tax Foundation, and we're talking a lot about uh, Pennsylvania taxes, uh, we also start off by talking about the state of Pennsylvania's economy, and uh, you know, there's some eye-opening information in in there as well. Uh, I'll ask the two of you. What stood out about this report about Pennsylvania to you? And Dave, I'm going to ask you the same question, but Nicole. Uh, The one thing that I really learned um, going in here was how complex your local income tax structure is. Uh, In Pennsylvania, you all have about 3,000 different taxing authorities on the state and local level, or on the local level, I'm sorry. Uh, So you have about 2,600 municipalities and about 500 school districts. This is an incredible outlier compared to the other states. Um, Only less than 20 states actually have a local income tax, so you're a bit unique in that structure. And then your next closest competitor in terms of taxing authority is Ohio, which has less than 600. Um, So I didn't really truly appreciate until I dug into the data how complex and burdensome that local taxing authority uh, setup is and really something that's rife for reform here in Pennsylvania. Okay, reform. 
the only reform I could think of there is if there would be fewer taxing, uh, less, fewer uh, municipalities. So that would be one thing you could do. Uh, and I realize in Pennsylvania it's a bit of a historical accident as Very to how so. you all ended up with this structure yeah. compared to many other states. So limiting um, the number of municipalities that can that have taxing authority would be a step in the right direction. Um, you can also do things to harmonize the structure. Um, for instance, in Maryland, the local income tax is actually collected on the state-level return. Um, so even making some small changes to how it's collected and how it's administered could go a long way. Um, but ideally, you would not have nearly that many local local taxing authorities. David Patty, what stood out to you? Uh, well, more than than, uh, than something new, what really was reinforced for me is the fact that our economy has changed markedly since, say, World War II. You, know, you go back to the 19th century, first half of the 20th century, we were one of the leading economies, not just in the nation, but in the world. And that was mostly manufacturing-based. Today, we are a services economy, something that policymakers know. But to really understand how, how employment has changed, how the economy has changed, while our tax policy hasn't changed, hasn't kept up, hasn't been modernized, I think uh, is something that, I, that I, seeing it in pictures really makes a difference. But aren't we limited? I mean, there are only there are only so many ways that we can tax. And as Nicole just mentioned, when we have so many taxing bodies out there, aren't we limited well, we, somewhat? We, there are some limits and there are certainly political limits. Uh, so from our point of view, it's OK to make a political decision about tax policy. And I don't think anything is more political than taxes. As long as that decision, however, is an uninformed decision, is based on fact, reality, hey, we looked at the numbers and we've now chosen to go in this direction. Uh, th there will be disagreement even within the business community about what reform actually is or what's the right direction to go or tax this, don't tax that. Uh, we all know all those old sayings about don't, you know, tax somebody else, not me. Um, but at least we want to have a starting point for policymakers and for all the stakeholders to say, let's start from a common platform and now talk about it. So there will be limits, I think, more political than structural. Um, but there's also some best practices from other states that we can look at. Other states that have a, an emerging energy economy, what did they do about that? Other states that have transformed from manufacturing to services, what did they do about that? Other states that are big on exports, which Pennsylvania is, what did they do about that? So understanding best practices, using that laboratories of democracy, looking at the other 49, also gives us uh, some hope. How is this report different? Because one of the things that the report does have uh, it does compare Pennsylvania, rank Pennsylvania, compared to a lot of other states. Almost every day in the news, we can hear, uh, depending on your political point of view with the statistic, Pennsylvania ranks here in job creation. Pennsylvania ranks here in our Marcellus Shale uh, impact fee if it was a tax. What makes this report different than some of those other reports? Well, I think because we look across the board, so you will see some things that Pennsylvania looks pretty good on. You know, our personal income tax rate. Now, there's a lot of footnotes I'd have to add to that, but it's a good rate. Um, there are other things we look horrific at, corporate net income tax rate. And then there's places where we're in the middle. And frankly, a small marginal change would make us move a lot in ranking. So, so being holistic is an important step in that process. We, we had, a, as an organization, had a conversation with Governor Rendell 
that led to that PA scorecard project where he said, you know, when there's, a, when there's something that says Pennsylvania's not doing a good job, you guys throw that in my face. And I know when there's something that says we're doing a good job, I try and tout it to you and say, look what a great job I'm doing. Somebody should look at everything. And, and the governor made a good point there. And that's been the basis for our work going forward in taxes as well. Let's look at the whole picture. Let's understand the whole thing. Um, but it's also why we didn't choose, for instance, just neighboring states or the old manufacturing states. Once upon a time, when I started in this business 30 years ago, people used to talk about the Rust Belt. You know, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, you know, going across that way, the old manufacturing states. Today, when we looked at this and put together the study, we did look at Ohio because not only do we share a border, but we share the natural gas uh, situation. But we looked at Virginia, where a lot of technology has moved to. North Carolina, that got a lot of our Pennsylvania manufacturing. Florida, that's big on business startups and has really done a lot to use educational workforce as a way to stimulate their economy. Texas, which has done so many different things and really become a, a go-to state for economic development. So we compared ourselves to those other states that are winning jobs and holding jobs to say, what could Pennsylvania do better? All right, let's get into some of the specifics. Personal income losing ground here in Pennsylvania, but still above the national average. So one thing that we do in the chart is we first start by looking at the Pennsylvania economy. And we want to understand how the economy is built, um, what industries are important, what produce a great deal of the economic activity in the state, but also who are the large employers and how does metro, non-metro divide. So the first chapter really digs into this data. But the place where we start is always with personal income. How does the state's personal income compare to the national average and to those competitor states that, that Dave was mentioning? And so if you look at um, the data, we can actually go back to 1929 using federal sources, and we find that Pennsylvania uh, was actually above the national average. Uh, during this period was about 110% of the national average in 1929. Uh, and then at World War II, it basically converged with the national average, which is where it's been since then. There's some small ebbs and flows above and below that average, but really uh, tightly uh, trailing that national average. But what you find is if you look at the other states, these competitor states that Pennsylvania has, um, they're closing ground. Uh, Virginia, uh, North Carolina, Texas, North Carolina all started with incredibly low personal incomes compared to the national average, um, down you know 40 percent, 50 percent, 60 percent of the national average. And they've all now basically converged with the national average. Virginia now actually has higher personal income than Pennsylvania does. And so while Pennsylvania is at the national average, that, that's good. Um, other states are catching up, and I think those states are going to continue um, to grow and gonna, could, quite frankly, could surpass Pennsylvania here very soon. Do we know why? Uh, it's a lot of these things that Dave was mentioning. We're having innovative um, policy choices made in states like Florida and Texas. Part of it's also historical. Um, the advent of air conditioning did a great deal to boost um, the economic development of some of these southern states in the the mid to uh, the midnight or the mid twentieth century. Um, but you also see states are implementing uh, broad tax reform. North Carolina is a great example. North Carolina passed an incredibly robust tax reform package in twenty thirteen, and our state business tax climate index. We look at a hundred different measures of a state's tax code. North Carolina was 44th when they started. They're now 15th. Um, so they've made dramatic change in the last few years to their tax code, which only helps their economy and helps businesses thrive in their state. One of the things that uh, you also found is that incomes are rising faster in metro areas. First thing that came to mind, tell me whether this is accurate or not, is that that's where when a business comes to Pennsylvania, 
they tend to go to those areas where there are more people. And the rural areas of Pennsylvania are not getting as many jobs. There's not as many manufacturing jobs as there were 20 years ago. A couple of factors there, and this this, uh, hinges also on on, on the change in in the income. Um, We've transformed from a manufacturing economy to a services economy. And so when Pennsylvania led the way on manufacturing and relatively non-skilled labor in a steel mill or in, in, in mining made a big, big income, um, Pennsylvania's uh, income reflected that, that and, and we were higher than other states. In today, in the information economy, that changes and in the services economy. So if you look at Pennsylvania's top sectors for employment, medical is number one now. That's, that's 16%. Number two is business services. And one of the fastest growing areas across all of America is business services. And that's accounting, law, engineering, architecture, you know, very much the knowledge economy can be located and, and tends to be located in cities. They don't need big buildings. They need offices. Um, so they don't go to those green fields and, and start a factory or something. They're going to go to where the people are. Certainly medical is going to go to where the population is that needs medical services. Um, so the income flows to the metro areas, to, to your question, but also in terms of us relative to other states, uh, those sorts of jobs can locate almost anywhere. And in fact, as you deliver even medicine through the internet, let alone software and legal and engineering, you can locate anywhere you want and deliver your product to someone somewhere else because it's something that, that's, that's based on the Internet. You mentioned two of them, but the five largest sectors of the economy, professional business services, real estate, manufacturing, government, and healthcare social services. Something that we have heard a lot about in the last 20 years in Pennsylvania, brain drain or outward migration. And I don't know, I I kind of was a little bit surprised at your findings here. Outward migration has slowed since 1991 here in Pennsylvania uh, by how much, and I guess this is all subjective, 3.8 million people have left Pennsylvania and moved mostly to Florida, Virginia, North Carolina, those states that you're mentioning. But 3.7 million people moved into Pennsylvania from New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. All right. The reason that those 3.8 million people left, now there are a lot of reasons probably, but the main reason economically. Uh, so there's a number of reasons, right? Why a, why a person relocates is, of course, a very complicated decision. Um, but you, there is an interesting trend there that the people who left the state are going to lower tax states and the people who are coming into the state are coming from even higher tax states than Pennsylvania. Uh, and some of it, right, is also geographic. So, for instance, um, if you live in Pennsylvania and you work in Texas, that's probably a bit difficult to do commuting-wise. There's <laughs> going to be some situations where it works. Um, but... If you work in Philadelphia and you have the choice between living in Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey, taxes might play a role there. Um, And what we do see is while it has slowed, the last two years of the data, we did see an uptick in out-migration. I'll be very curious to watch that data over the next several years to see if that trend continues and did we reverse the trend again. Well, those people moving to Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, I don't know about Connecticut, but the first two I, I thought of, okay, we have all these people who are who work in those states who are moving to northeastern Pennsylvania. Is that a factor here? There's some, so there's a couple of things that have gone on. For all the complaints that you, that you hear about Pennsylvania's property taxes, they're worse than a lot of other states. And so people from New Jersey have been coming across the border. 
Um, you know, our immigration problem, uh, you know, is, is Delaware River. That's where the wall needs to be, you know, because we've had the New Jerseyans coming here for 30 years now to escape higher taxes over there, as, as Nicole suggests. You had another factor then after 9-11, where there were people who lived in what they thought was ground zero, who have relocated or relocated their families. And they may go back into the city to work, but they moved out. Uh, to be in what they thought was a safer place. And in fact, you had parts of the tech community that left New York City and the financial community and set up their their data centers and back office operations in Pennsylvania to be on a different grid and to be in a, in a different area so that it couldn't be impacted by a second uh, 9-11. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about the new report, Pennsylvania Illustrated, A Visual Guide to Taxes and the Economy. Our guest, Nicole Kading, an economist with the Center for State Tax Policy at the Tax Foundation, and David Patty, president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Business Council. All right, let's talk about taxes. Pennsylvania, 10.2% of income in Pennsylvania is paid to local and state taxes. That's above the national average of 9.9% nationally. I imagine this goes back to what you said earlier about the number of taxing bodies we have in this state. But still, that figure is higher than the national average. It is above the national average. And it's not just taxing authorities. It's tax rates. It's tax collections. It's all of these various things really coming together in this one statistic. 10% of personal income in the state of Pennsylvania goes towards paying state and local taxes. Now, I will note here that this is not just state and local taxes here in the state of Pennsylvania. One thing we look at is the amount of taxes that are paid across state lines. So for instance, if one of your listeners here in Pennsylvania decides to go down to Florida to go to Disney World this summer on vacation, they're going to be paying a variety of taxes in Florida. They're going to pay sales taxes on their hotel and on their rental car and on the food and beverage they consume. And and those taxes would be recorded as collections for the state of Florida. But really, the economic burden of those taxes resides in Pennsylvania, and we account for those transfers. So you do have very high taxes here in Pennsylvania on the state and local level, um, but there is some of these decisions are being made by other states that are impacting Pennsylvania residents. David Patty, you had mentioned earlier about the personal income tax. Actually, our 3.07% personal income tax rate is 44th in the country. Now, that is one of the areas in which Pennsylvania is probably like being 44th in the country or being close to the bottom. But as you said, that doesn't tell the whole story. Right. The devil's in the details. So I'm glad you bring that up, Scott. Sure. Um, we are that low. Uh, in fact, of those states that have a personal income tax, we're the lowest or the second lowest uh, because there are six or seven states that don't have one at all. So they're at zero. Uh, so they, they, they get the top rankings, you know, in, in terms of the best. Um, but there's more to it. First is that our personal income tax base that Pennsylvania uses, which is essentially all income, differs from a lot of states that use the federal adjusted gross. And now we get into really wonky tax stuff. But if you think about what you do when you take your standardized deductions and everything on your, on your taxes before you get to that magic line at the bottom of the first page, you know, you have reduced your income. Pennsylvanians don't get to do that on, on their state taxes. So you can have a lower rate on a bigger base and get, get more money. The second part, though, that's really important and we'll go to, I'm sure, something you'll get into later, is that small businesses pay their taxes on the personal income tax base, what we call pass-through corporations. So sole proprietorships, partnerships, LLCs, S-corporations. And there, a lot of other states give those small businesses some deductions and some some tax treatment that we don't do, net operating loss, like-kind exchange, uh, bonus depreciation. So... Pennsylvania has a low rate, 
but the, the tax base can be broader for our small businesses and for our individuals. What about collection of uh, the personal income tax our rate? Pers- our personal income tax rate historic, or, or, or collections have historically been incredibly efficient and incredibly low cost compared to other states. Something we should take pride in is because of the simplicity of a flat rate and virtually no deductions, it's kind of, you know, what did you make? What did you already pay in? You know, multiply by this number, you know, send in the rest. Um, and, and that's a good thing in tax policy uh, because it makes compliance very, very high. There's not a great ability to cheat, so the state doesn't have to spend a lot of time trying to find out if you're cheating. And most people just say, I can do this. This is easy. I fill it out. I send it in. Um, and, the, and the compliance cost of the state is pretty low. So there's some, some nice fat features in our tax. This is probably one area that uh, many people don't think about that often is the rate of compliance. Now, I'm going to talk about the corporate income tax rate in uh, just a moment. But since we're talking about compliance, you found that uh, Pennsylvania does not do well, or at least we trail other states when it takes, comes to uh, sales tax collection. So what you what we do see is we looked at sales tax collection in, in a few different ways. Um, we first looked at how stable is that revenue source, and actually compared to the big of the big three state taxes, we talk about sales, individual income, and corporate income. The sales tax is actually the most stable, which is what you would expect. Um, even during times of economic downturn, individuals still need to buy food and clothing, and, and they still have their basic necessities. Like, need you to know, be. you just mentioned two areas that are not taxed. Right, but you, you still have <laughs> other areas, right? They're still buying those sorts of, right, of goods. Right. Yes. Um, and, and so the sales tax is, is pretty stable. Consumption doesn't actually change that much year over year. Uh, but on the opposite hand, the corporate income tax, which I think we're going to get into a bit more, uh, is incredibly volatile. You can have 30% changes in a year, positive or negative, in the amount of revenue that the state collects. Um, but what you really see with the sales tax is because you're only taxing goods and you're exempting things like food um, – only about 30% of transactions in the state are subject to the sales tax. And ideally, we'd be include taxing many more. And that could do a couple things. One, if you're taxing more um, more transactions, you could maybe lower your rate. Your rate's kind of middle in the pack if you look at a combined state and local tax rate on, the, on sales tax. You could perhaps lower your rate or maybe use that revenue to decrease your corporate income tax rate, which is incredibly uncompetitive. Um, but so ideally, you'd be wanting to, to tax more transactions, more goods, more services under that sales tax base. But Dave Patty, you know that uh, Governor Wolf proposed that uh, last year, expanding the items that uh, would be subject to the sales tax. And politically, that wasn't uh, met very well. Uh, you know, making changes in this state, Nicole, we don't do it very quickly. But, you know, politically, that well, would be difficult know, so, to do. So, frankly, I'm not even sure that politically it's a great idea inside my own organization if I want to get reelected. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it's one of those things that we decided when we did this project the numbers are what the numbers are, and we're going to report the numbers fairly and accurately. Also, there is an academic ideal for tax policy, and it's, cl- it's clear that we need to start from that as a basis and say, look, here's where, where most experts agree you ought to be. Here's where we are. Let's start with that and now make a, a rational decision, which includes the rational decision to not do some things that might be ideal. So for, for the businesses that I represent, frankly, there may not be a consensus to do some of those those things. Or it might be, well, a phase in or this if we get that um, and, and, and some combination uh, over time. Um, our point of view would be no matter the politics or the administration or the control of the legislature or the makeup of, of people who are active in business associations, we can do better than we're doing today. And we need to start from, from good public policy 
facts and, and move from there and then make our decisions. I think that one area politically you could get a lot of agreement is just how to do it is that corporate net income tax that we we're talking about. 9.9 percent puts Pennsylvania second highest in the country. Uh, but the thing about it is, again, it's kind of back to the devil in the details uh, that even though it is a high rate, not everyone is paying that rate, right? Well, yes, and, and and there's a lot of things to go in. First, it's an it's an income tax, you know, net income tax. Right. So it's not a receipts tax, which means if you don't have income or net income, <laughs> there's no tax. So you you you've heard uh, Governor Rendell used to make charges that oh, you know, there's some great percentage of the companies don't even didn't even pay tax last year. Well, he was making that charge during the recession when that percentage of the corporations didn't have profits to tax. Um, so that's that's one factor that, that goes in there. Um, there is a, a factor, and, and Nicole got to the volatility. Well, in fairness to tax people who, who created the tax, originally our state net income tax, corporate net income tax, and others were a three-part formula that looked at your property in Pennsylvania, your assets in Pennsylvania to your assets nationwide, and then your payroll in Pennsylvania to your payroll nationwide, and your sales in Pennsylvania to your sales nationwide. And it added those three factors together to, to figure out how much tax you would pay to the state of Pennsylvania. We got rid of the asset factor and the payroll factor because the business community convinced the General Assembly that's a disincentive to locate your business here. You know, think it through and said, so if I locate my business here and, and buy assets and put people here, my taxes will go up? How does that make sense? Now, the, the downside is that volatility that you trade off for that in terms of, of the receipts. So every action has an equal and opposite reaction, and, and that's one tax policy there. Um, but it, it's important to look at, at our, our, our corporate net income tax from the point of view of is it fair to all corporations, and it doesn't. They're, they're, you know, different companies, different types of businesses are treated different ways. There's still some, some negative impacts of being headquartered in Pennsylvania. And so Delaware we, loophole. I'm sure there are a lot of people thinking about those two words. Well, there, there probably are. Um, now, in, 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 in my role, if you use that L word, we have to put a dollar in the jar. Um, but, <laughs> but one person's Delaware loophole is another person's legitimate tax deduction. And in fact, I will tell you, and I, I've been trying to make news with this for 10 years, there is a program in the state of Pennsylvania from the Department of Community and Economic Development that will teach people how to do that exact transaction if they're thinking about coming to Pennsylvania so that they will lower their taxes. So our own government is helping people to learn how to do it. And it's a really complex thing that, that doesn't make for good radio. But the bottom line is that, that there are those people who we know are bad actors, who frankly are egregious in what the, they do and how they do it. And there's other situations that are so blatantly and clearly a good thing to do. That the, the, the issue here is about your intellectual property, so trademarks and formulas. Well, if Lamar Industries comes up with a formula for methyl ethyl meatloaf, and I'm a, a chemical manufacturer in Pennsylvania and want to pay you to use that formula, it makes all the sense in the world that that's a business cost for me. And so that, that I would deduct that as a business expense. If I set up my own corporation in a low-tax state, and we often think of Delaware, but there's others, and boy, what a, what a coincidence that the, the royalty I charge myself from, from company A to company B, and I own both companies, happens to be exactly equal to my taxable income. 
that shouldn't be the right case either. The problem is trying to make public policy about that. So what we did in the corporate administration is to give more powers to the Secretary of Revenue and to the administration to look at those on a case-by-case basis and determine, is this a good actor or a bad actor? Uh, Because it's just, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to that question. I want to talk about excise taxes. Uh, Cigarettes, Pennsylvania, 22nd. It seems as though every year we're talking about uh, adding more tax to a pack of cigarettes. Uh, Smokeless tobacco is something that we don't tax here in Pennsylvania. Beer, 45th in the country. Wireless, on uh, wireless uh, phones, we're ninth in the country in our excise taxes. Uh, So what does that say about our excise taxes? So I think it says a number of things. Um, As you talk about something like a tobacco tax, for instance, the idea is that if we increase the tax on tobacco, then fewer people will smoke cigarettes. Now, that evidence is actually not extremely clear that that's actually the result. Um, what is clear is what results is tax smuggling, um, is that individuals will buy cartons of cigarettes in other states and bring them across state lines, or perhaps people will do this in bulk. There's a, The next time your listeners are in New York City, I challenge them to walk into a bodega and buy a pack of cigarettes. Um, I'd put money on the fact that it will have a Virginia tax stamp and not a New York City tax stamp. Um, individuals will fill up their cars, their trunks uh, in Virginia, drive the several hours north to New York City, and sell the cigarettes. Which is there. illegal, but... It's completely illegal. Uh, it's not the thing that you want to happen, but you're encouraging these sort of activities, or you're encouraging people who live um, close to Ohio or close to New Jersey and Delaware to perhaps go across the state lines and, and stock up. Um, we see similar things right now in Philadelphia, this proposal on the soda tax. Um, it's the same sort of thing. You're encouraging individuals to either buy their sugar beverages outside of the Philadelphia city limits in Pennsylvania or to go across into New Jersey or Delaware to, Actually, to the, buy those. The fun part about these discussions is I have been in policy discussions with people about these taxes in Pennsylvania over the years where we've had two different economic conversations about the same tax, one with the cameras on, one with the cameras off. So with the cameras on, it's like, well, you know, they always say if you tax something, you know, it'll be less of that. So we'll get people to stop smoking. When the cameras go off, we talk about, you know, it's an inelastic good. The demand will be there no matter what the price is. So we'll keep getting the revenue. <laughs> At one tax that we are number one in the country is gasoline tax, uh, 50 cents uh, per gallon. Um, you know, that was something that uh, over the years, Pennsylvania politically had a very, very difficult time finding the money uh, to upgrade and maintain our transportation system. And, and we, were, we were big proponents of that tax increase uh, because we're big payers of that tax increase. And we, we were pretty good at math. And we did the cost-benefit analysis and said the cost of delays and detours and congestion and road closures was greater to us than the cost of, of the fuel tax. So if you look at the chart book, what's interesting is you'll notice that Pennsylvania at one time was relatively high in uh, you know, a normalized version you know, of, of the tax to other states. We got to be about the national average. We're now higher with, with, with our increase. But it's the same conversation that's going on in Washington about – national infrastructure funding. You know, we, you've got to find a source. And we went back in theory on this one as, uh, look, this is a user fee. Those who pay f- for, for the fuel are those who are using the infrastructure. So, so they're paying directly for, for their own benefit. Well, infrastructure, and, you know, it, it's many people would listen to this and say, well, the business community uh, doesn't support a lot of tax increases, but you just mentioned this was one that you did. Right. The business community probably knows as well as anyone how important it is to maintain that infrastructure and and keep it upgraded. Well, that's the problem. One of the reasons it cost so much and that the tax increase was so great was that we had neglected it for so long. 
Um, so if you do a little bit all the time, and we all know this about our own homes, about our cars, you know, a little maintenance each year is a lot better than paying for it all when it, when it, when it breaks completely. The report is called Pennsylvania Illustrated, a visual guide to taxes and the economy. Now, is this available to the public or will it be available to the public? It is. It is available on the Tax Foundation website at taxfoundation.org, and it's available on our pascorecard.com. Uh, a couple of places on there, including on the taxes page, there's a link that they can can see everything. And frankly, if anyone wants to, uh, our contact information is on that website. You can always uh, call or write us, and we will send you a, a book version of it. David Patty is the president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Business Council, and Nicole Kading is an economist with the Center for State Tax Policy at the Tax Foundation. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Anyone who's gone through an American history class in middle school knows that Benedict Arnold is the country's most famous traitor. We know that Arnold betrayed the young United States and the Continental Army by providing and attempting to sell information to the British during the American Revolution. Nathaniel Philbrick has written a new book that portrays Arnold and his treason as much more complicated than what most of us know and have learned over the years. Joining us is Nathaniel Philbrick, author of Valiant Ambition. Mr. Philbrick, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Well, you have been on our program before. We enjoyed uh, your last uh, conversation about uh, your last book, uh, Bunker Hill. Let's talk about uh, Benedict Arnold. I'm going to start with something that you write near the end of your book. Benedict Arnold has been portrayed as one of the biggest villains in American history. But you write that Arnold's betrayal actually brought the young country together at a time when the war and the country could have gone either way. How so? Yeah, well, the the this is the great tragic irony of Arnold's life because he had been one of our best generals early on, and he was a great hero to the American people. And it was when uh, it was learned that he had attempted to turn over West Point uh, to the British, uh, something that could very easily have meant the end of the revolution uh, and the end of the United States. Uh, this was a huge wake-up call to the American people because uh, the, by this time the revolution had been going on for five long years. Uh, uh, the Continental Congress didn't have the funds it required to to f- fight this war. Washington's army was falling apart. Uh, mutinies were occurring. There wasn't enough food, not enough clothing, not enough weapons. I mean, it was all grinding to a halt. And it was Arnold's treason that alerted to the people that, uh, wait a minute, this wa- this war is ours to lose. He was burned in effigy in towns up and down the eastern seaboard, you know his word, his name became a byword for that most hateful of crimes and this was a true wake up call and so it could be argued that uh in the early years of the revolution no one did more than Washington short of Washington than a Benedict Arnold to to support America but it was his treason that really turned things around i don't think that there's any accident that within less than a year of of his treason uh america would win that extraordinary victory at Yorktown that would effectively end the War of Independence. And so Arnold is a very interesting and tortured character uh, that I think speaks to the fact that, you know, we weren't just fighting the British. We were fighting ourselves. And, um, and, and 
you know, this is a side of the revolution most Americans don't know much about. Well, let's talk about that tortured character. You write that uh, Arnold, Benedict Arnold, was a very complicated person. In my introduction, we have heard the simple explanation over the years in our history classes and many of our history books. But it is much more complicated, as you write, than, you know, that glossed over version that we hear. In what way was Arnold complicated? Well, he was a very passionate man um, and, you know, sort of narcissistic, but incredibly charismatic on the battlefield. If you were fighting with him, you, there were, you'd never experienced a better commander. But he, ha- he, was, but he wasn't able to rein it in. Um, he, he rubbed people the wrong way when not in a battlefield situation. Uh, fellow officers and politicians, he you know, had a habit of dismissing them out of hand. And so there was controversy continually followed him. And, you know, one of the early blows that really began to really rocked him uh, was that after a string of victories, uh, he was our highest ranking uh, brigadier general and Congress, who had the power to appoint Washington's major generals, the men upon whom he depended the most, in their wisdom, uh, decided that each state should get two major generals. And since Connecticut, Arnold's home state, already had two, they would overlook the best brigadier general and elevate five inferior officers past him to major general. I mean, it was just absolutely outrageous. Washington was appalled on his behalf. And uh, this began Arnold to question, you know, what is going on here? My own country doesn't acknowledge what I'm doing. And then finally at Saratoga, soon after this, where he would win this great victory for America and be be terribly injured in the left leg. He wouldn't be able to walk for uh, several years. Uh, His his injured left leg would be two inches shorter than the other one. You know, he had given almost everything for his country, and he became increasingly embittered and began to wonder uh, if if, uh, the American people had given up on the cause that they had initially taken up with such fervor in 1776. If you have a question or a comment uh, for Nathaniel Philbrick, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. Let's talk about that victory at Saratoga. You know, it just so happened, as I was reading your book the other day, I pulled a quarter out of my uh, pocket, and on the back was uh, you know, victory at Saratoga, 1777. Uh, talk about uh, what Arnold did, because it truly was one of the great military victories that this country has ever had. Yeah. uh, British General John Burgoyne had come down from Canada, taken Fort Ticonderoga, crossed the the Hudson, and was on his way to Albany. Uh, But he was running into trouble. The American wilderness was catching up with him. His his army was beginning to run out of food. Meanwhile, thousands of uh, American militiamen were flooding in from New England. Uh, Continental soldiers uh, from Virginia were coming up from the south, and this huge army was forming. Uh, the, the commander of the army was Horatio Gates, uh, who feared that Arnold, you know, the swashbuckling, aggressive officer, might steal some of his thunder. Uh, and they, they began to argue. And there were two battles of Saratoga. After the first one, it was Arnold's soldiers that dealt the most devastating blow to the British, and Gates chose not to mention Arnold in his official report of the battle. They began to argue. They had a falling out. Ultimately, Arnold would cease to be a part of the army. He was basically thrown out of it. But 
and the Battle of Bemis Heights, the final climactic battle, that did not prevent him from appearing there. Even though he had no soldiers under his command, he was such a charismatic presence, soldiers were willing to follow him anywhere. And at the end, he saw that there was a British redoubt on the right, that if he could take that, it would basically end the battle. And so the sun was setting. He took off between two lines of fire, uh, rode through the, the back entrance of the redoubt, the sally port, raised his he was on his horse raised his his sword and shouted surrender a uh, hessian soldier fired his musket the musket ball uh, fractured his leg killed the horse collapsed on top of him but he had done it he had you know the battle was ours and as he said to a friend who came up to him he said i wish the musket ball had gone through my heart he was so filled with rage and despair and this began his descent into treason we're to take uh, some phone calls here in just a moment but uh, something you've just described you know the continental congress the founding fathers of this country have taken on near mythical status over the years yeah. but uh, arnold didn't see them quite that way and there were a, there was a lot of infighting a lot of personality clashes involved, a lot of jealousies. Now, you just mentioned Horatio Gates, not a member of the Continental Congress, but a general. But you know, he comes off as a bit of a, I don't know, to me, kind of a sniveling, uh, sneaky kind of yeah. guy. And, you know, they're all, they were all looking for glory, with the exception of Washington, um, all looking for glory, looking uh, to... Who got the most uh, attention and that kind of thing? The Continental Congress, uh, you know, a lot of jealousies there, a lot of divisions between New England and the rest of the colonies. Talk about that, if you would, because that goes a long way toward Arnold's ultimate betrayal. Absolutely. You know, he, he, he sees his country as, as uh, uh, basically dysfunctional, uh, falling apart. The the, uh, the politicians are more consumed uh, with fighting their own personal battles uh, rather than dealing with the issues that require attention. Uh, they're they're leaving the con the Continental Army to wither on the vine while they argue about you know uh, who should, who has precedence on the floor that kind of thing. A dysfunctional Congress really is nothing new, and and meanwhile many of uh, Washington's generals were were basically scheming against him. Horatio Gates after uh, uh, becoming the hero of Saratoga, even though it was, you could argue that it was uh, Arnold's bravery on the battle that was really the most responsible for victory, would uh, go down to Philadelphia, where uh, Washington had lost lost Philadelphia to the British. He was holed up in Valley Forge, and there would be many in the Continental Congress who said, hey, Look at Gates. He's the general. We should replace Washington. And uh, this would be known as the Conway Cabal. It would ultimately come to nothing. But it just shows you that, you know, how beleaguered Washington was, as as was Arnold. By uh, They were fighting not the British. They were actually having to expend more energy fighting among themselves. And this is was happening throughout the country. Uh, the, there was a real civil war raging in the country, particularly around the peripheries of uh, British-held New York, where uh, gangs of, of uh, loyalists were, were battling it out with gangs of patriots, literally raping and pillaging former neighbors. It was a very, you know, people like Arnold would look around and say, you know, have we 
uh, turned our backs on the great promise uh, with which we began this revolution in 1776. Well, and and just so everyone knows, the Congress at the time uh, didn't have the ability to tax its citizens. Right. So yeah, you know, we didn't have an executive branch. They did not have the ability to directly tax the people. They didn't have really the power to make this country run. And you know, we think of uh, arguments over how big should our national government be. You know, what are what should be state, what rights or the state should have, all this kind of thing. They're, we're still arguing about them today, but they were part of the discussion then. And we, on top of that, we were trying to fight a war against the British. And so, you know, I, many of us grow up with this image of the Continental Congress, of, of Jefferson, uh, Franklin, uh, John Adams, you know, these stalwart giant figures cooperating and, and creating documents like the Declaration of Independence. The fact of the matter is, after that, those guys all left to go to their states or to France, and the third stringers came in, and uh, it was Congress was poorly attended, and it just wasn't working. And so uh, someone like Arnold, who was growing increasingly embittered, began to say, it's time to bring in the British, to restore the freedoms we once had, because this war-torn nation is going to fall apart. So you mentioned the leg injury, which, uh, you know, did go a long way toward the start of his betrayal. And, Jim, I, I, we have a caller on the line. Be patient, because we're going to get to—he has a question about his wife, Peggy Shippen. Uh, but uh, how did the leg injury—how was that the beginning of the path toward betraying the United States? Yeah. Well, Arnold was was a true athlete. His athleticism was essential to his his, his identity. And uh, this injury not only was a terrible physical wound, but a psychic wound. Uh, he he was uh, bed bound for months. Uh, his his fractured leg in the equivalent of a medieval torture device, a fracture box, where he was so immobilized he couldn't even write his own letters. Uh, the leg that would emerge from the fracture box would be two inches shorter than the other one. It would be a, more than a year before he could walk again, uh, more two years before he could ride a horse. Uh, you know, this this was just a desperate outcome for Arnold. And uh, and on top of that, he was broke. Uh, he had uh, donated much of his own personal wealth to the cause in the early years of the revolution, and the Continental Congress was reluctant to reimburse him. And uh, and then finally he was he was made military governor of Philadelphia after the British evacuated it because the French came into the revolution largely because of the victory at Saratoga, and Washington knew that Arnold couldn't serve on the battlefield so why not be military governor of of war torn Philadelphia which was a city uh, in chaos as the patriots returned to the city they had no. Uh, love of the loyalists who'd remained, and and Arnold, who was hardly uh, tactful, was not the right kind of personality, and and soon he was just embroiled in controversy. Yeah, he was uh, deciding that uh, he was going to take some things on his own, like furniture and other things, uh, to kind of pay himself back for what he had put in. All right, so he married Peggy Shippen, and for those who think about that, Shippensburg here in Pennsylvania, Shippen Street in Lancaster. There may be other Shippens out there, but uh, she came from uh, a very influential family. Her father was a a, a judge, and they were living in Philadelphia. They were part of a a society, leaned toward being a loyalist, even though I I don't think they actually were uh, officially called loyalists. But tell us about uh, Peggy Shippen and Benedict Arnold. 
Yeah, well, uh, Peggy was uh, 18, half Arnold's age, a, a beautiful woman, and we know this uh, because uh, during the British occupation, uh, one of the British officers named Major John Andre uh, did a, a sketch of her, and uh, you know, she's just a lovely person, and and um, uh, and she she and her sisters enjoyed the British occupation, uh, socializing with these British officers, and uh, the Americans come in, she falls in love with Benedict Arnold. And um, and it's I don't think it's an accident that within a month of their marriage, uh, and meanwhile Arnold is being just harassed by uh, uh, political authority, the the Pennsylvania authorities uh, led by Joseph Reed, a Pennsylvania lawyer and former adjutant general of of, of Washington's. Um, uh, he he marries Peggy, and within a month of that their wedding, uh, he he sends his first. Uh, uh, Letter secretly uh, to the British in 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 New York to none other than Major John Andre, and thus begins the correspondence that will ultimately lead to his treason. Jim is in Enola, and Jim, you have a question about this. Uh, yeah, you set it up pretty well about the relationship between uh, Peggy Shippen and and Benedict Arnold. Uh, we're big fans of this show called uh, Turn Washington Spies, which is on AMC. It just started its third season. The, the, one of the plot points of that show is that, in fact, uh, Major Andre and Peggy Shippen had a relationship. They were lovers, and that they basically cooked up a conspiracy for Peggy to go to Benedict Arnold and, and uh, have him fall in love with her and so forth, and that this was all part of a, of a conspiracy that they cooked up. My questions are, number one, was there really a physical relationship between, or is there evidence of a physical relationship between Major Andre and Peggy Shippen? And two, is the show correct in that this, there may have been a conspiracy to get Andre to become a traitor? Thanks. Hey, thank you yeah. very much for your call. Well, thank you. And I've asked, been asked a lot about the show Turn, which I have to admit I haven't seen. Uh, you know, it, it, it is started, good. It is it, good. Yes. It, yeah. People love it. And and it began while I was working on this book, and I just didn't want a TV show to get between me and my engagement with the primary sources, you know. So at some point, I will see it. And, uh, you know, it, what it's, it sounds like they've somewhat sensationalized the relationship between Andre and Peggy, uh, uh, Peggy Shippen. Uh, the, the, they were, they de definitely socialized, but if Andre had a close relationship um, uh, with with a woman in Philadelphia society, uh, it was it was a, a different girl who who he refers to um, in other letters. Uh, clearly, they were you know they knew one another. I, I I would doubt that they had a physical relationship, but I you know you could you could you know I don't think there's the evidence either way to to den deny or, or affirm. And she would definitely take an active role uh, in kind of stage managing uh, Arnold's uh, uh, growth as a as a as a traitor. Um, she clearly, when he was showing being reluctant about it, she would urge him those kinds of things. But you know, I think it, it sounds like uh, it's it's you know they've heightened it a little bit. But there is definitely a a a, a source. A, a certain truth in what they're dramatizing. Uh, you know, I wish we had more time. We only have about 90 seconds left. And let's talk about the betrayal itself. Uh, Arnold, the, the plan was that he was really trying to become head of uh, West Point, uh, yep. strategic on the on the Hudson River. And he and Andre made these plans. They met. It all kind of fell apart. Uh, and talk about the betrayal itself, because Andre ended up... Uh, I don't know. I guess you could say 
on the on the worse end of it than uh, than what Arnold did. Right. Well, so Andre is taken by three American militiamen who find uh, papers that Arnold supply hidden in the sock of of one of his feet, and um, and they realize what's happening. And um, the word eventually, and Arnold learns of this just before Washington uh, is set to arrive at his headquarters in a house about a mile below West Point on the Hudson River. Arnold rushes up to Peggy, says, you know, this the gig is up. I'm out of here. He escapes down the river to British-occupied New York. Uh, Peggy goes hysterical uh, in a dramatic way that uh, that gives a source of cover for her husband to escape. Washington learns of it and turns to Lafayette, uh, the general that is kind of a surrogate son to him and says, whom can we trust now? And then, um, and then Andre uh, is ultimately hanged as a traitor. Uh, there are many young American officers, such as Hamilton, who, who object to this, that want to trade Andre for Arnold, but the British refuse that. And, and you know, the great and tragic irony here is that it's Arnold's betrayal that awakens the country. And, you know, it's a, it, it's, it's a story of, of treason on all sorts of levels. Well, I have to tell you, Mr. Phil Brick, that uh, I love the book, and I know that many of our listeners would. It's called Valiant Ambition. It just was published uh, last week. Nathaniel Phil Brick, thank you very much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, NPR Scott Detrow will be with us.